Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, the 29th of April, 2021. In today's podcast, Dr. Nick Wood will present an update on the vaccine, looking at safety issues and other developments. Hello everyone, I'm Associate Professor Nick Wood from the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance and welcome to the latest Health Ed Immunisation Update. In today's talk we'll look at the latest in the vaccine rollout, uh, what's happening with vaccine safety and spend five minutes with the community Pfizer vaccine. The government recently announced that they will be changing the vaccine rollout and so that the preferred vaccine for the over 50s is the AstraZeneca vaccine and for the under 50s is the Pfizer vaccine. These graphics are now available on the Commonwealth Department of Health website and you can see that we've now given over a million doses across the country in, in GPs, Aboriginal Community Controlled Health um, Environment and in GP respiratory clinics. One of the key things has been the change in the consent form for COVID vaccine. And as mentioned, the Pfizer vaccine is preferentially recommended for those under the age of 50. And in the consent form, there are now additional questions which look at those with relevance for the AstraZeneca vaccine, such as whether people have had a past history of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis or heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, um, and particularly whether the person is under the age of 50. Uh, in terms of precautions to vaccination, there are certain things to consider, uh, particularly those that have had an allergic reaction to a previous dose of vaccine or to an ingredient of the vaccine and whether or not you've had anaphylaxis to other vaccines. Uh, important to check with your provider to see whether or not uh, you as a provider ask the patients whether or not they've had a, a previous anaphylactic reaction and then you'll be able to look at the key components um, in that vaccine to see if they're also in the COVID vaccine. Um, if people have also a mast cell disorder, then there are some precautions, and my advice would be to seek uh, additional thoughts from the allergy or immunology specialist. If people are, have a bleeding disorder or take, taking a blood thinning medication, uh, then it's important that they uh, tell you as the provider um, and so you can then decide how best to give that vaccine. I'll talk a little bit more about the clotting issue um, later in this talk. In terms of the latest vaccine safety data, this is the data as of uh, the 18th of April. Ausvac Safety has sent over 400,000 surveys to vaccine recipients across Australia. Um, nearly 280,000 participants have taken part in the survey. Uh, all of this data is available on the website. One way that GPs are using this is to show the patients these graphics if they have time during their vaccine uh, encounter. Um, we're looking at surveillance of both community and AstraZeneca and this data complements the data that goes to the TGA. And for you out in provider land, the data is updated every week on a Wednesday. Uh, so the latest data from community dose one um, is showing that uh, over 100,000 participants, um, uh, nearly 38,000 people are reporting one or more adverse events. Um, and as you can see here, about one in three people are reporting um, injection site pain, one in five some fatigue, and then other things are less common. Uh, community dose two, nearly uh, 66,000 or just over 66,000 responses, 
It's a bit more reactogenic uh, than community dose one, and you can see here that fatigue, injection site pain, muscle aches and headaches are fairly common with about one in three to one in two people reporting it. Uh, one in four people are reporting chills. This sort of uh, side effects usually comes on in the first 24 to 48 hours, and, and as I'll show you in a minute, uh, are pretty much gone by day four or five um, of after vaccination. In terms of AstraZeneca dose one, we only have survey data after dose one as yet, given the rollout has just recently commenced. Um, and we have 111,000 people who have taken part. Um, and you can see here that the side effects after AstraZeneca dose one are fairly similar to those after the Pfizer dose two. Um, in fact, just under 2%, 1.7% of people are reporting that they're having to go and see a GP or go to ED after the vaccine. And most of the time, this is for um, fatigue and headache and muscle aches, which they weren't expecting. Um, so it's important to warn people about this particular um, side effect. We've been doing this surveillance now for just over a month, about six weeks. And it's uh, pretty fair to say that the surveillance is pretty stable. Um, these sorts of side effect profile that we're showing you in the bar graphs haven't really changed in the last um, four weeks. Um, I think I might have showed this slide before, but this is a similar system in the UK, which shows the reactions after Pfizer 1, Pfizer 2 and AstraZeneca. Um, and you can see here that AstraZeneca is a bit more reactogenic than Pfizer dose 2, but the rise and fall of the side effects is showing that most of the action is happening in the first 24 to 48 hours and then is falling away and back to normal by day 6 or 7. So it's important to remind people that if they do feel unwell in that first little period after the vaccine, to make sure they rest, keep up their rehydration, and, and, and if they're worried at all, go and seek medical advice. Um, so usually you don't need to do COVID testing if people have had fatigue, a headache and fever. However, if they have respiratory symptoms such as cough, runny nose, sore throat, uh, this is unlikely to be caused by the vaccine and therefore recommended to throw, uh, follow public health, health advice and go and get tested and isolated. Um, this will be important as we've recently seen with um, cases that have escaped quarantine and possibly getting into the community. Therefore, we have to be vigilant about keeping up our testing threshold. We don't recommend testing for anti-spike antibodies. Okay, so onto the clotting issue. Uh, Australia now has six cases reported. Five of those cases were in people under the age of 50 and one was in uh, a person over the age of 50. Um, the regulators across the world are looking very closely at this issue. There have been some publications, particularly out of Europe. These two publications appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the conclusion of one of them was shown here which was the vaccination with the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine can really result in the development of this ITP or this immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, also known as thrombosis with thrombocytopenia, which clinically mimics the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So it is a, a plausible link between the vaccine and this particular um, condition. Um, the UK had, um, this is some of the UK data um, as of uh, mid-April. Mid uh, they've given uh, millions of doses, and as shown here, 21 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine. And they've had about 168 reports of blood clotting with low platelets. 
Um, you can see that there's uh, unfortunately uh, a fairly high um, death rate with this particular issue, um, but the rate overall is eight cases per million. And in the UK environment, the benefits continue to outweigh the risks. Um, they do make a note here as shown that those at high risk of blood clots because of medical conditions or pregnancy um, probably do need to seek uh, medical advice and I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, if you do have uh, first dose and have had no problems then the recommendation is to continue the second dose. If people do have first dose and then do experience some blood clots and low platelets then they should uh, not get that particular dose too. In the UK, the recommendation is to uh, use a different vaccine under the age of 30. So here's some summary data of the, the risks of uh, um, this condition in comparison to the COVID um, disease. A slightly different situation in the US to Australia, of course, but um, what we do know from under the underlying rate of the heparin-induced thrombocytopenia is around about 20 to 40 per million and the underlying rate of the CVST is somewhere in the range of 14 to 28 per million. Most of the cases of CVST don't have thrombocytopenia, okay, and this is why this is a unique thing. However, prior to the COVID rollout, there were some cases of CVST and thrombocytopenia, and that was around about one per million, okay. Um, the risk of having CVST after COVID is certainly higher than that. And then overall, the estimates here, um, of this thrombosis and thrombocytopenia in the European Union are about, about 10 per million or one in 100,000. Um, Australia is seeing a slightly higher rate um, in the under 50s and that's in the order of 20 to 40 per, per million in the under 50s. Um, so what symptoms do this particular thing cause? And this is where you as frontline um, health clinicians need to be sort of aware of it. Um, it's usually in the four to 20 days after vaccination, although there have been a couple of cases that have occurred up to 28 days later. Um, importantly, people present with severe abdominal pain or severe headache that doesn't settle with pain relief. And therefore, if they have these issues, they should go and seek medical um, advice. Importantly, some people are presenting with um, thrombocytopenia, which is presenting as petechiae. Um, they're getting small uh, blood spots under the skin, i.e. petechiae, and in that environment they should go and have a, um, a full blood count taken to assess for it. Um, <clears throat> the um, Hematological Society of Australia and New Zealand is putting out lots and lots of documents, and there's a, a website available here as shown. Um, they're committed to provide weekly updates on this condition. Um, I think I showed you this before, but just to remind you, if you um, see someone that's clinically got an issue that might be related to um, thrombosis, uh, then this is the timing and try and get a platelet count, um, a high, uh, look for high D-dimer, um, and then you can discuss that with your local haematologist. Um, so the Haematological Society put out a really nice flowchart, and I won't spend time going through it in detail with you, but I think if you see someone who has severe headache, severe abdominal pain, uh, is extremely breathless, and you're worried about a clot, then um, locally you can get a platelet count and a D-dimer. And the cases that we're seeing have, in, in the main, had a low platelet count, or a sudden drop in platelet count, which was previously in the four or 500 mark, has now dropped to, you know, in the hundreds. Um, so that would be the starting point. Get a full blood count and a D-dimer. 
and then go on to try and image um, the appropriate site. And then you, as you can see here, it divides into those cases where there is thrombosis seen or no thrombosis seen. Um, and you specialised testing for the anti-PFOR antibodies should be taken, undertaken as well. So I have a look on the Hematological Society website and here's just a base flowchart um, to show you. Um, so a lot of the questions we're being asked is if people have had a previous history of blood clots, um, is the AstraZeneca vaccine um, safe? Certainly if you've had a past history of CVST or heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, then the recommendation would be to use the Pfizer vaccine. If, however, you've had um, other types of blood clots in the past, or if you have risk factors for blood clots, um, then the recommendation is it's safe to have the AstraZeneca vaccine. We're hearing people that are saying, yes, I had a blood clot in the past, and yes, I had low platelets. In those particular instances, um, if you do know of those cases, then our advice would be to talk to the um, relevant local haematologist. Um, all of the cases bar one, I think, have occurred after the first dose of the vaccine, and therefore if you've um, had no problems with first dose, then the recommendation is to go on to get dose two. Um, this is just, a, again, on the Hematological Society of Australia and New Zealand, a, a request tom, form that you can um, fill out um, if necessary to get the um, person to have additional blood tests done, particularly the anti-PF4 antibodies. Um, so Australia is doing a lot of in, efforts to try and um, communicate the risk and benefit. Um, and so this is available on the um, health.gov.au website. Um, this is the scenario in the first wave of, of COVID-19 and you can see here that um, the risk in the, uh, certainly in the under 50s was, was pretty much um, equivocal between the benefits of vaccination and the harms and for that reason Australia chose to make the cutoff at the age of 50. Um, another scenario they're showing here is what happened in Victoria in the second wave. And you can see here that the, the risk-benefit profile, when there's more disease circulating, is certainly in favour of vaccinating younger people. Um, these particular risk-benefits will be updated as the um, burden in Australia um, continues um, to, to be followed. Um, and as you know, right now there's very, very low disease in Australia. And so um, one of the issues is, is the, uh, how best to improve our vaccine uptake. And on April the 30th, NCRS is having a webinar, which you can go to the NCRS website and register for. And that webinar is all around uh, vaccine uptake and acceptance. So the take home messages for AstraZeneca uh, is particularly prefer Pfizer in the under 50s. Um, we understand that their availability uh, may well be liberalized over time. I'll show you a slide in a minute that might point towards that. Um, it is probably the risk of the CVST is estimated about, as I mentioned before, 20 to 40 uh, events per million doses. And it nearly always happens in the first 20 days, somewhere between four to 20 days after vaccination. Um, in the over 50s, uh, current advice is to proceed. Um, we talked about having clots in the past. If you've got a DVT after leg surgery, then that's one of the known complications of your leg surgery. And in the absence of any thrombocytopenia, then it would be recommended that it be safe to proceed. If you had a congenital thrombotic disorder, such as antiphospholipid syndrome, protein C, etc., deficiency, uh, advice is being generated by a TAGI and, and will be the subject of a future talk, I am sure. 
Um, if you've already had dose one, then as I mentioned, um, you can continue with dose two, and at the moment, we would not recommend a switch to a different uh, vaccine. There are mixed schedule studies underway in the UK. Um, just to remind you about the uh, story with allergic reactions, because we still are seeing reports of people reporting vocal cord tightening, um, and they're being labelled as anaphylaxis, and these particular patients are getting adrenaline, which may or may not really be needed. Um, so if in the time after the vaccine you do see someone that says, yes, I feel a bit odd and my throat feels a bit tight, make sure you particularly look in the skin, respiratory and cardiovascular symptom. And if you can, make a note of these, take some OBS, look for their change in blood pressure, heart rate, um, particularly comment on the presence or absence of weed, and the presence or absence of rash. Because when these get reported through to the notifiable systems, the adverse event surveillance systems, it helps us to get a better understanding of whether they really are true anaphylaxis cases or not. Um, one of the, the potential things we're seeing is those people that are being misdiagnosed as anaphylaxis when in actual fact it's an allergic, uh, sorry, an anxiety uh, stress triggered response. Um, so it's really important, if we can, to get a good handle of the skin, respiratory and cardiovascular systems. It just enables us, when they get reported, to ascertain if it truly is anaphylaxis or not. Um, okay, so five minutes with the Pfizer vaccine. Um, um, the Pfizer vaccine is an mRNA vaccine, and as you know from press reports and in the, in the media, um, it's a very effective vaccine. Um, and this is the um, data which was from the phase two, three trial um, showing very highly efficacious uh, vaccine, particularly against severe COVID of upwards of 90%. Um, when compared to the AstraZeneca vaccine, the approval for the community one is a little bit younger. So it's over the age of 16. It's still in a multi-dose vial. Um, as is the AstraZeneca vaccine, but the volume is 0.3 mils rather than 0.5 mils. Um, and the timing of the doses is slightly different in that the interval is 21 days. You can see a list of ingredients there, and the important one that in the um, community vaccine is the PEG um, component. And why that's important is because if you do have an allergy to PEG or an anaphylactic action to PEG, then you should not get that community vaccine. Um, the um, cold chain and storage for the Pfizer vaccine has been an issue. Um, and as you know, that meant it had to be stored at minus 50 to minus 70. Um, this is being um, liberalised um, and such that now there is some move for it to being able to be stored um, in domestic fridges for a longer period. And, and this is good because it may well be with emerging and new stability data the Pfizer vaccine, which is currently only being deployed in the hubs, might be able to be rolled out into more community-based settings. But we're not yet there. Not yet there. Um, so as I mentioned, it's, it's two doses, at least 21 days apart. The minimum interval between doses is 19 days. And um, if you do get a late dose, it's not an indication for an extra dose. And as I mentioned, we do need to use the same brand for dose one and dose two. Um, particularly uh, contraindication is the um, anaphylaxis to, to PEG, um, so you can ask um, patients about that. Um, so I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes talking about flu for this year because we are starting to roll out the flu vaccine. 
and the flu vaccine will roll out at the same time as we're trying to roll out the COVID vaccines. And, and what will make it tricky is how best to space those two vaccines apart. Um, flu last year was pretty much a non-event. You can see this is the data for 17, 19 and 2020. Very, very little amount of flu seen. Um, Atagi and the government has put out a lot of information about the flu um, brands this year. Uh, all of the vaccines will have four strains in them. And they're shown here, two A's and two B's. Um, there's lots of information on um, health.gov.au and on other jurisdictional um, websites. Um, the key points are that annual vaccine is recommended for the over the age of six months. As I mentioned, all of them are the four valent ones with two A's and two B's. Uh, for those over the age of 65, the best vaccine is the adjuvanted QIV Fluad Quad. Um, uh, for the first time, um, uh, you get the vaccine, you need two doses in children, um, and the dose now is half a mil. There's no half doses for children. Um, Co-administration of the flu vaccine on the same day as the COVID-19 vaccine is not recommended, and we do like you to have a 14-day interval if possible. Um, the flu cell vax quad is a cell-based vaccine. Um, which is able to be used you know, on the private market for those over the age of nine. And as you all know, it's now mandatory to report that vaccine. Um, so when's the best time to get the flu vaccine? Um, annual flu vaccine ideally should occur prior to the onset of each flu season um, because it's the first three to four months that you get the best protection. Um, it should be continued to offer um, throughout April and May, um, but don't stop offering it, particularly for pregnant women or particularly for children as they turn age six months. Um, when is the second dose of flu vaccine uh, recommended? Um, everyone needs a single dose, but two doses, at least four weeks apart, are recommended for those aged six months to less than nine years and anyone who's having the flu vaccine for the first time after a stem cell transplant. Um, so two doses on the same season is not contraindicated and for some people, um, travel reasons, etc., it might be good to have two doses, although I'm sure in this environment international travel may not be that um, common. So in terms of timing of flu and the COVID-19 vaccines, um, th these are the following principles. Those who are in the phase 1A, 1B and 2 should really prioritise the COVID vaccine first um, and then get the flu vaccine later. Those who are in the later phases, the after, after phase 2, should ideally get the flu vaccine if it's available and then the COVID vaccine once it becomes available. Um, as I mentioned, we don't want to do any co-administration. We do want to have a recommended 14-day interval. Um, However, there's no requirement in the order of receiving them. So you can do flu, then COVID, or do COVID, then flu. Um, if, however, inadvertently you discover that someone did get the interval of less than 14 days, uh, then you can be just remind them that there, there might be a little bit of increased reactogenicity, although we don't really know, to be honest. But the important part is we don't need to revaccinate with either of the vaccines. Okay? So if you get flu and COVID, but the interval is not 14 days, um, chances are there won't be any severe nasty side effects uh, and we don't recommend revaccination. 
there's lots of information on the Utagi webpage as well. So have a look at the um, uh, OSVAC safety webpage. Uh, remember, as you're already doing, the under 50s is the Pfizer. Uh, if someone has a past history of CVST or HIT, or in my view, any, any thrombosis that's associated with low platelets, uh, then probably worth, um, certainly for the CVST or the HIT, do not give them um, the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, Novavax, we understand, might be available later this year. It's going undergoing TGA determination, but the phase three trial results are not yet published, and there will be some more target advice coming in the next um, little while. Lots and lots of information available for you. The upcoming webinar, which is on the 30th of April, is looking at COVID vaccine uptake and acceptance. Uh, thank you very much. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au.